Thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode of Motley Fool Money. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Supernova, David Kretzman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, 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 Chris. We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We'll talk with best-selling author Beth Kobliner, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney's first quarter profits came in higher than expected. Revenue was a little light, though. David, I'll start with you. The the ESPN narrative that we've seen the last few quarters continues, even though the parks and resorts are really kind of getting it done. Beating a dead horse there. It's kind of Wall Street style with Disney at this point when it comes to ESPN. But last quarter, management set expectations for 2017 that the company is going up against a very tough comparison, largely due to the success of Star Wars The Force Awakens last year which globally topped $2 billion at the box office. Rogue One you know, came out in December, did great, it hit a billion dollars, but I mean, that's half of what Force I, Awakens brought, which I, is a great problem to have. But I think you mean only a billion. <laughs> right, only a billion. At this point, that's a, a low mark for, for Disney. But all in all, I, I think the quarter was good. You did see revenue down 3%, operating income down 7%. But like you said, the parks and resorts segment, you saw sales up 6%, operating income up 13%. Shanghai Disneyland is expected to break even this year. A lot of things to look forward to with Disney across all these different segments. And that, and that is the beauty of the company, right? It's got its hands in so many of the premier entertainment properties in the world. And so when one's kind of down and it's hard to call the studio business down when you've got a billion dollar film come in. But when one's down, the others can pick it up and it's an extraordinary company and consistent. So would you say when Disney has a flop, it's a little bit easier for them to let it go? <laughs> oh man. Wow. I thought I would expect that with Simon. <laughs> I was just gonna say I expect the, I expect puns from Simon. It looked, it looked a little forced, Jason. It looked a little forced, but good stuff. Uh Jason, we saw this story before the earnings report came out, and it got confirmed by the man himself, this idea that Bob Iger, who is due to leave the CEO office in June of 2018, may stay on a little longer. He had said, I'm going to do what's best for the company. I'm going to listen to the board. If you had to bet right now, do you think he stays on a little bit longer? Because it feels like the window for him to put someone in place is closing pretty quickly. I think yes. And the reason why I say that is is manyfold, honestly. But I mean I think this is gonna be perhaps the most important transition of power for this company in in many, many years to come. And and I think that with all of the success that uh, Mr. Iger has had to this point, and we were talking about this before taping, it just Wall Street is very persistent about this ESPN question. And until he can really firmly, I think, and, and successfully answer it and really sort of show the path to success with that, um, I, I, I think he wants to be able to do that. And, and we're seeing the signs there. I mean, the Hulu relationship that's getting ready to to launch, uh, additional over-the-top opportunities, uh, all of the investment and time spent with Bantech. I think there are seeds there that are starting to show some, some green shoots, but I do think that, that Iger would love to be able to 
to, to really prove that out. And so, to give him a little bit more time, he seems to enjoy what he's doing, and he does it really well. And typically, when you have that combination, it's almost like you're not working anyway. So, I, I suspect for him, he's just uh, having a really good time doing what he's doing. And I think shareholders wouldn't mind seeing him stick around. When you look at that media network segment, you really do need to keep it in perspective. I think this conference call, we saw Bob Iger and company talk about digital media, BAM tech, more than they have in previous calls. So that's clearly where their attention is focused. And, and they're not being caught off guard with this transition from traditional cable bundles to digital streaming. But when you look over the past five years, Disney is becoming increasingly diversified, to Maddie's point. So when you go back to 2011, the media network segment made up 70% of Disney's total operating income. Last year, it made up less than 50%. So the company is growing and in the process becoming more diversified. So I think if you're only focused on ESPN, you're really uh, you're overlooking a, a very quality and increasingly quality business. Shares of Twitter falling more than 15% on Thursday and Friday in the wake of a fourth quarter report that was disappointing to say the least, Jason. Revenue was not only light, it was the slowest growth they've seen since they've gone public. Yeah, and I told Mac um, on Market Foolery, I think that the Twitter investor relations feed needs to change their avatar on their Twitter feed back to the Twitter egg, because these guys just lay egg quarter after quarter after quarter uh, on the earnings side, and they continue just to, to disappoint. It, it seems to be as regular as the sun coming up almost. But I, I do think that for all of their shortcomings, and I've, I've been extremely critical of a company that I was very bullish on for, for a long time, I'd say I'd say I'm still quasi bullish. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a world without Twitter. I mean, I think it does really serve a very important purpose, but I think it's been a very poorly run business for a long period of time. There are, there is maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I think you saw modest growth in users, but I think more importantly, you saw the third consecutive quarter of accelerating growth in daily active users. And I think for something like Twitter, that speaks volumes because it is that type of a platform where you more or less the users are using it and checking it on a daily basis and that's a sign that engagement is improving and engagement really is going to be something born of all of the new things that they roll out to the platform so Jack Dorsey I think hit the nail on the head when he was talking about the fact that while Twitter remains very relevant they're still not meeting those growth expectations that have been set for them uh, it, it, again, hard to imagine a world without Twitter. I think for shareholders, it's easy enough to sort of hang on to your shares because it's that ticket to, to the potential that still exists. But uh, no question, it seems like it's going to take a while for them to ultimately get there. Yeah, because if you're an ad business and you're struggling during a presidential election, then you're not doing it right. That that's what's brutal, and that's what I really don't get with Twitter. So this quarter, they had higher user engagement, both with monthly active users and daily active users. Their ad engagement was up 151% for the quarter, which is accelerating, but ad revenue still fell year over year. I just don't get that. As far as an advertising company, they are really dropping the ball here. Yeah, and I agree there. I mean, I think it's important to note that they've been very consistent. Dorsey's been very consistent when he said, listen, revenue is going to trail User growth. So, user growth is going to come first. And once they can prove out the platform and engagement, that makes it more attractive for advertisers, which then helps spur revenue along. So, that remains to be seen. I mean, they have a lot of lofty goals for 2017, one of which is to become gap profitable. And if they can hit that, if they can become a profitable business, then I think all of a sudden, 
you've got something there. You've got an actual business that has some promise, and then you really start. You can start to more traditionally value the stock, and you can make a little bit more of a case for it as an investment. Shares of Activision Blizzard up more than 18 percent on Friday after a blowout fourth quarter report. The video game makers' profits and revenue both higher than expected. What's driving it, Maddie? Yeah, they absolutely crushed it. You know, going into the quarter, a lot of investors, including me, were worried about the Call of Duty sales, which really disappointed. Um, that's usually their big game every year in the holiday season. Didn't do well. It had some bad competition with uh, Battlefield One, which everyone seemed to like. But clearly, Call of Duty did not matter because revenue in the fourth <laughs> quarter was up 49 percent to over two billion dollars. Here's what's really impressive, though: for the first time, uh, Activision had at least 1.5 billion in sales on each on PC, console, and mobile. So, absolute home runs on every gaming platform. And of course, we know the mobile story there is there because they purchased King Digital, the, the leader, about a year ago. Uh, a few interesting points. Uh, consumers spent an estimated 43 billion hours playing or watching Activision games last year. That's on par with the number of hours watched on Netflix. And maybe this is Bobby Kotick throwing a little shade out there, but it's 1.5 times the amount of time spent on Snapchat, which we know is about to go public <laughs> hey. at about the same valuation as Activision Blizzard. So, I'm just saying. Um, but the story here with the video game space and with Activision, it's, it's just the, the move to digital that we've seen over the last several years. In-game content sales were $3.6 billion uh, last year. That's a record. Um, if you take, even if you take out King Digital, that grew 30% year-over-year. They generated $2.2 billion in operating cash flow and announced a $1 billion share buyback. I think Bobby Kotick just dropped the mic there. King Digital, the maker of Candy Crush, they paid a lot of money for King Digital, and a bunch of people, myself, took on a lot of debt. Included were very critical of that. It looks like, based on this latest report, I need to eat a little crow on that one. Well, I I don't know about that, but it's generating that mobile business now is generating hundreds of millions of dollars in cash flow. If you look at King Digital, they might pay that back in about two years and pay off about all and all the debt they took out to do it. So very impressive buyout. One potential blemish with King Digital is uh, the monthly active user count for for King Digital. Has dropped from about 500 million at the time Activision bought them at the end of 2014, and now that number is down to just 355 million. So that number has steadily gone down each quarter. The users that they do have are increasingly engaged, but at some point they need to come up with another Candy Crush esque hit to, to bump up that user count again. Uh, sticking with gaming, Take Two Interactive shares hit a new all time high this week. Uh, David, they got a new partnership with the NBA? Yeah, so they're, they're creating a joint venture with the, the NBA, and this will be the first professional video game league with the U.S. sports uh, league, uh, the NBA. So uh, think e-Lakers and e-Knicks. So essentially, the vision here is that each franchise in the NBA, whether you're talking about L.A., New York, Sacramento, shout out to my Kings, uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll own or control their own esports team. So they'll draft players. They'll, these will be full time uh, salaried players. Uh, th- these uh, different teams will deal with marketing, product licensing, and more. And as someone who I, my eyes glaze over whenever I play or watch a shooter game. And I, I think this is something that will really broaden the market for esports. And, and for a lot of people like me who, who might not be drawn to a shooter game, Watching an esports tournament with basketball, football, hockey, I think that that really does open up the market. So I'm curious to see how this plays out. Maybe your E Kings can make the playoffs. <laughs> I hope so, man. They, better than the real Kings, hopefully. Hasbro shareholders had their best day in more than two decades after fourth quarter profits came in much higher than expected. Jason, they also raised the dividend. That's always nice. Sure is. Uh, kind of continuing from the discussion there on Disney and its uh, success. I mean, I think Hasbro. Is a very good example of a company that has figured out 
how to sort of hitch their wagon to, to the to the stars out there in, in the IP world, Disney being the main one. And and I think in the face of what was obviously a very brutal retail season, I mean, we saw just every, it seemed like every retail stock just got peppered. Hasbro just went the other way. It was a phenomenal quarter for them, a phenomenal year, really. I mean, you look at a company like this, they grew their top line 14%. They grew sales 14% for the year. Just phenomenal, I think, for a company like this when we've been talking so much about the secular challenges in, in the toy industry. Uh, but I think they've made a very good uh, shift there into the digital space. And I think they've utilized a lot of the properties that Disney has uh, to do that. We uh, didn't really have any doubt here, but but we sort of were wondering would Hasbro winning that Disney Princess partnership have a material effect on the business? It certainly has, and and we've seen on the other side of that coin certainly Mattel has suffered, uh, which just makes you wonder how leadership let that one uh, slip from their fingers. But I, I also think this is a testament to Hasbro's leadership, a very smart, consistent leadership and CEO Brian Goldner. He's been there since two thousand and eight. You look at the stock chart, Chris. Is that the results speak for themselves? Yeah, you wonder if you know we're always looking to see if, if Iger's going to make another acquisition. They've uh, obviously they've earned great licensing revenue for years, if not decades, from Hasbro. But you know, bring that in house, capture a lot more of that revenue. Well, maybe. and they they continue Disney trying to figure out how to make that consumer products part of the business stronger. That could certainly be one way to do it. Up next, earnings palooza rolls on. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and David Kretzman. NVIDIA's fourth quarter revenue rose more than 50%. It is the second straight quarter the graphics chipmaker has done that, and it just wasn't enough to impress Wall Street, Matt. Well, the stocks had an incredible run, but you know, this. This isn't isn't supposed to how how it's supposed to work in the chip space, right? Nvidia has been around for a long time. They've made uh, GPU processors for as long as I can remember playing video games in the 80s and 90s. But uh, this it's experienced certainly a renaissance, and that's its its chips have become attached to a lot lot more interesting and compelling end markets. We talk about autonomous driving, virtual reality, and artificial intelligence, uh, and as a result, their sales have have boomed in recent years. Their gross margin. Uh, has held up around 60%. And generally, you'll see with a lot of chip companies, that gross margin, it's, it's super hard to maintain, usually comes down over time. Uh, NVIDIA's been able to maintain it. And I would just say, looking at the stock and what it's done, it, it makes me, it gives me the hippie jibbies about uh, you know the hype cycle that we talk about sometimes, Dave Kretzman. But I don't know, what do you think? You had CES last in January. Uh, NVIDIA really stole the show with its keynote. And I can't help but wonder if we're nearing the peak of the of the hype cycle. But man, you look at the, the company has its hands in all these different valuable segments, and it, its biggest segment is still gaming, which makes up over sixty percent of revenue. But there are a lot of tailwinds behind gaming. You know, as we talk about esports, virtual reality, the performance demands for that hardware and software will continue to rise. So I think Nvidia is in a good position with that. Let alone with other categories like automotive or, or uh, data centers or whatever it might be. Fourth quarter results for Buffalo Wild Wings were anything but spicy. Profits came in lower than expected, and same-store sales fell more than 4%. And yet, David, the stock didn't really suffer. Defying logic. I mean, Buffalo Wild Wings had a rough 2016, and the company consistently overestimated what its future results would be. Uh, So, it closed out 2016 with the worst quarter of the year, fittingly enough. Uh, Total sales were up less than 1%. Same-store sales down 4%. Net income down 38%. They do have a new CFO on board, and I think they're starting to feel the pressure from activist investor Mercado Capital. So you're seeing the company 
toned down the, the number of company-owned locations it's expecting to open. They're refranchising about 10% of their company-owned restaurants this year. They're going to be taking on debt to buy up to buy back up to five hundred million dollars worth of stock this year, and I'm not really sure about that strategy because the stock is near a 52-week high. The valuation is questionable, and the fact that they're going into debt to buy back stock rather than focus on the core operations gives me pause. But uh, all in all, they, they they are shifting their strategy a bit. Shares of Panera Bread hitting a new all-time high this week after fourth quarter profits came in higher than a year ago, and Jason. You look at what they're doing in terms of digital sales, and it's really impressive. Yeah, I've really enjoyed watching this turnaround, particularly sitting at my desk, uh, in, enjoying a delightful chicken Caesar salad from the Panera right across the street. Uh, I, I, I think, wow! I mean, they really have pulled this turnaround off, and I think that, I think that Starbucks is going to be taking some lessons from these from these folks in the, in the near future here, given the challenges we've seen at Starbucks with mobile ordering and, and ordering in advance and, and throughput and whatnot. Um, as you mentioned, digital sales a big key here now. A quarter of total sales in company-owned stores. They have 25 million My Panera loyalty members. I think probably every one of us here at the table are uh, members <laughs> of that club. And and at the year end, uh, a little bit more than 2,000 stores. A nice healthy mix of fr- a mix of franchise and company-owned. So, I, I think when you look at this concept, the stock is doing well because the business is doing well, and that's because of sort of. Founder Ron Shake taking a step back, looking at this pragmatically. I think the mosh pit concept was really when things started to turn around because that was when they realized they had a problem and they need to do something about it. Um, I think the most attractive part of Panera is still the upside here. They can open more stores, and I think the market opportunity is there. Uh, a much broader cross section of opportunity than maybe some of their competitors. So I, I suspect we'll, we'll uh, continue to talk about more upside for Panera for many quarters to come. Whole Foods' first quarter results were almost an afterthought, as the company said it is scaling back its expansion plans. Uh, Maddie, we always mention that CEO John Mackey is on the board of directors here at The Motley Fool. That goal of 1,200-plus stores that they've put out there for a while, that is now a thing of the past. Right. I think a lot of us start questioning that pretty regularly over the past couple of years. Uh, it just didn't seem a lot of, that a lot of the new markets they were going into were, were bringing a lot of success, and now we see uh, comparable store sales continue to decline. Guidance was very weak for this coming year, but I actually think I think it's the right move. I mean, I think this is what we've talked about, which is you know if if they can pivot back to their core customer and not worry about the value conscious customer who's clipping coupons and going to Safeway or Kroger. I I think that's the right customer. Now, if if this is a story where we don't have 1,200 stores, but maybe we have 700 or 800 stores that are very profitable, well positioned. Because now they're um, at about 450. Right. Uh, that's that's still a relatively compelling story. I, ex- I expect the unit economics of each store to to improve because of that, and so this this could be still a valuable investment uh, for investors. It just won't be the growth store we thought it was. Yeah, I think that's key there, and I think we've seen some signs that really um, surprised us, yet also made a lot of sense. Ratcheting back that opportunity, uh, they've closed down a few underperformers, and they've they've more or less put that 365 concept on hold to further assess it. They have some leases they're going to fulfill as they open up a few new ones, but I think they really want to get a handful of them open, run them, study them, learn from them. But but that the 365 concept doesn't really fall in line with the strategy shift that we just found out about no, when they're going back to their core customer. So my suspicion is we probably won't see the proliferation of those 365 stores that we uh, anticipated maybe a year ago. All right, Jason Moser, David Kressman, Matt Argusinger, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, best-selling author Beth Kobliner is going to make your kid a money genius. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. 
All right, before we get to my conversation with Beth Kobliner, I've got to say thanks to Audible for supporting this week's episode of Motley Fool Money. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving, when you're stuck in traffic, if you're doing stuff around the house, at the gym, running errands, whatever you're doing, you can take an audiobook with you. And for our dozens of listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com slash fool, and you can browse their unmatched selection of, of audio content. You can just download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. If you've been listening to this show, then you've heard me talk with people like Nate Silver and Charles Duhigg. You can get their audiobooks at Audible. I loved interviewing these guys, but when it came time for me to pick a book, I had to go with something a little bit on the lighter side. I downloaded Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Jim Dale, a master at the audiobook form. Anyway, go out and pick your own. Get a, a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash fool. That's audible.com slash fool. Teach your children well. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. If you want to teach your kids about money, there is a good chance you're doing it all wrong. Beth Kobliner is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Get a Financial Life. Her new book is Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not. Beth Kobliner, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. You and I grew up at the same time, and over the years, I am guessing you remember seeing public service announcements on television encouraging parents to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol, talk to your kids about sex. I've Absolutely. G- I've got two daughters and one son. I've talked to my kids about sex and drugs, and yet I was smiling when I started reading your book because this is something you hit on right at the start. It is so hard to talk to your kids about money. Yeah, it really is. I think it is just drenched with emotion, and you know, there's no black and white to it. It's kind of all these gray areas, and we feel like it's something we know it's important, and I mean, obviously, you know a lot about money, but even people who don't know about money are pretty terrified, scared, feel like they don't know enough to tell their kids, or fearful that their kids are going to find out how bad they are with money. So I feel like this book was really specifically for parents um, of all, hopefully, all income levels and you know all um, educational levels when it comes to money savvy. And I feel like it will help teach parents about money and help them then teach their kids about, you know, everything from saving to compound interest to why you shouldn't get into credit card debt. And one of the things you hit on right at the start is just how young children are when they start picking up clues about money and how it works and how we value it. And so, one of the shocking things to me was when I was reading your book, I was thinking, wow, I didn't, I, I feel like I started early enough, and I probably should have started even earlier. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I mean, it's funny. I feel like uh, people get kind of anxious about what they miss out on teaching their kids, but I do think this is one of those topics you can kind of ease in on er- any age group. Um, you know, the research shows by age three, kids actually understand. There's some great research. University of Wisconsin, this uh, professor, Corinne Holden, and she found that by age three, kids can really understand basic money skills, basic money concepts like 
exchange. When, you know, you give money, somebody gives you something back at the store or value, certain things have value. Um, kids could understand needs versus wants. You know, we need milk, but we want chocolate milk. And we'll, we'll talk about, like, whether we're, you know, we're paying most of our money for needs, but some may be for wants. And those kind of discussions are really great to have with kids when they're young. Um, but there are other discussions you can, you know, make up for lost time, hopefully, and talk about, you know, a little bit more advanced ways of talking about money to impart that to kids. So what are some of the biggest and most common mistakes that parents make? Um, I think parents lie. We say, oh, you know, you're in the store and a kid said, can we have this? And you say, no, sorry, I don't have any money on me. And then you use your credit card for coffee and they see it. So I think we lie and it also confuses them because, you know, many kids, many little kids haven't even seen cash before. All they see is the card. I think we fight about money with our spouses and research has shown that it can lead to kids, you know, grow as they grow up, having more difficulties with money. I think we sort of uh, shun the idea that our kids could even understand it, you know, whether they're three or even 13 or like, oh, they don't really get it. Um, I think we start too late about it. Um, and I also think we sort of give in to our financial baggage. Like if you feel that, oh, I don't know, it's too overwhelming, I'm too scared to talk about it, and I don't want to get into college because who knows if I could even afford it. I think we just sort of try to put it out of our mind. But I actually think that talking about it, um, all these topics are is really important, like talking about college in eighth or ninth grade with your kids can actually relieve the anxiety if you go to a few websites to find out, you know, and I go through that in the book, to find out what financial aid or what your financial um, expected contribution would be, you know, within a few thousand dollars, but just to get a feel for where you could afford, where you could apply, and to start having those discussions sooner. One of the classic debates when it comes to kids and money is paying them a weekly allowance versus paying them to do chores around the house. Where do you fall down on that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I... I have been hearing that debate for 25 years, and I finally I looked at the research. There are, you know, a couple of dozen studies that look at should you give kids allowance, and the bottom line is studies all over the country and in England and in um, Great Britain I was, and also Canada, and there was a study, um, you know, one study said that when you give allowance, it's really good because it gives kids money and teaches them responsibility. Another study said, no, when you give allowance, it's kind of money coming out of nowhere, and it's not good for kids. And the bottom line is it doesn't really matter if you give allowance or not, but it does matter if you are giving money to your kids in some form that you be consistent and you be clear about what you expect them to use it for, and then you don't go back on your word. For example, I think it's so common to say, all right, I'm going to pay for, of course, your food and your clothes and the basics, but if you want to, you know, go out to pizza with your friends, you know, I'll pay for that once a month, but you're going to have to pay for it for then on. But then, you know, week two rolls around and suddenly your kid wants to go out with friends and you're like, oh, all right, I want them to be social, I'll pay for it. I think that's where we all make mistakes as parents. I know I certainly have, um, and I think it's important to come up with a reasonable expectation of what your kid's will do with the money that they give them, um, and to be consistent about it. You're listening to Molly Full Money talking with best-selling author Beth Kobliner. Her new book is Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not. 
There's some unconventional wisdom in this book. One example, you say that a great parenting move is just doling out a big wad of cash. That's, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like I a mean, recipe for losing my money. Doesn't it? But here's the thing. Okay, so yeah, we know, as you know, you know, MIT showed that when you use plastic, you're t- you basically are likely to spend twice as much than when you use cash. When you use a debit card, credit card, plastic, it feels like fake money, and you spend twice as much. Also, you know, if you give a kid cash, you give them $100, say, for your, you can buy, you know, extra stuff for school or whatever it is for clothes or whatever that budget is, and they go to the cash register and it's $101, they're going to have to put something back. There's that experience of, I don't have enough money. Whereas if you give it, you hand over your debit card or credit card, even if you have a good kid and you say, well, don't spend more than $100, if it's $110, nobody's going to say anything. So it's important to give kids cash so they experience the idea that money is a finite thing. And I think it really does give kids a grounding um, in the val- literally the value of a dollar by seeing the dollar. What about when your kid has money, and it's their own money, and they want to spend it on something that you know, you know in your heart is just frivolous and it's going to be a waste of money. Right. Do you step in? Do you stop them? Do you wait for them to blow it? And then a week later, you hold it over their head and say, remember, I told you. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. This comes up a lot. And I feel like, I mean, it's fine to have rules if you don't want them to spend all their money on candy, like a hundred, you know, Snickers bars or not to spend their money on toy guns or Barbie dolls or whatever your thing is. I think it's okay to be reasonable and say, I don't like X. But I think beyond that, it's pretty good to let them spend their own money. That's the point, right? To have those experiences. And if they buy something you know is a crummy toy and it's going to break, what I, what I sort of suggest is let them do it, but also remind them to keep their seat. And then they might say, you know, they might have that, have that experience. My son just did that. He bought this, like, drum. He's a drummer, and he bought this thing, and it, it didn't work quite as the way he thought it would. And I said, okay, we have the receipt. Find it, that bag, on the bottom of your, you know, desk. Fish it out. Look for the receipt, and we could return it because it was defective when you bought it. So those kind of experiences are really huge learning lessons because he was like, wow, that's awesome that if it's not, if it's not working properly, you can return it, get a new one. And I think... That kind of learning experience is kind of invaluable for a kid, and sometimes that means failing and doing something wrong. And um, I think that is what their own money is supposed to be for, as long as it's not dangerous. One of the things I really like about your book is that it is age-appropriate for different ages. The lessons Mm, for elementary school kids are obviously uh, more basic money one-on-one things than for kids in high school, that sort of thing. Um, at The Motley Fool, we focus on investing in stocks. Mm-hmm. What do you think in terms of starting that conversation with your children about not just be careful about the money that you spend, also make sure you save money in terms of investing money so that you can grow it over time? When do you start that conversation? Yeah. I think, again, I mean, in very, very elementary ways, you can start uh, talking about it with really little kids, uh, you know, the notion of you plant a seed and it'll grow. So, I mean, that's really young. For like a three or four-year-old, it's the notion of you, you know, put down a foundation and it 
you put the seed in the 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 dirt. I'm from the city, so I barely know how to do this. But you and it invests. It grows into a beautiful flower. That's you know blossoming. But when you're talking about elementary school kids, you can explain the basics. You know, the next time you watch a Disney movie or drink some sort of drink with your kid, a Coke, you can you know talk about stocks. That these are uh, li- these are companies and they sell stock. And a stock is a small piece of a company that you can own. And then you can talk about you know what what that means, um, and if your kid is in third or fourth grade, they'll be able to understand those basics. Um, you could talk about, uh, like, Coca-Cola, it's a drink that maybe he loves um, or not, not allowed to have, but, or, you know, Hasbro makes a toy he loves, and talk about the different things that affect a stock price. I think kids are so interested in those concepts. Um, in middle school, I think the best thing is to talk about you know, compound interest. That is, as you as you guys talk about, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. If they start at age ten and they put aside, you know, a quarter a day for the rest of their life, you know, they'll probably have. If they get a seven percent return, we'll have about fifty thousand dollars by the time they retire. And just those numbers alone, um, there's a great. Uh, the SEC has a website. Uh, investor.gov that you can go on and play around with the numbers, teaching kids the fun rule of 72 or talking about inflation. Um, I'm not a big fan at all of these stock market games or investing camps. I mean, I think sometimes it entices kids and it's great if you need a way to sort of get a kid interested in money. But I would much prefer talking to a kid about an index fund and talking about why that's a smart way to invest. I think kids love the insidery, you know, behind the scenes here. Well, you can pay one percentage point or you can pay 0.1 percentage point and look how much you're saving over X number of years. You know, the real examples with using numbers is always effective and research shows that's a better way to teach kids or teach grown-ups in general about money. Um, and I think that there is so much they can understand, you know, even in high school, opening a Roth IRA if they have a job. Um, and that will protect the money if you're applying to college. You know, colleges take more of a kid's money in his name versus in, in, or her name versus in the parent's name. So putting a little bit of money into an IRA is not a bad idea because colleges usually don't look at that um, when they're looking at how much aid you'll get. So there, I think there are all kinds of ways that kids can, parents can approach investing with kids. Even if they don't know that much about it, they can still explain a lot of these pointers, and they'll learn those pointers as they read my book. You dedicated this book to your parents who did not have a book like this when you were a kid, but it sounds like they definitely instilled money values in you and your brothers. What's one tip you can share from Shirley and Harold Kobliner? Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it really is a labor of love in that way that my parents really um, taught us. You know, my dad was an educator, a principal, and my mom um, was mostly, she was a chemistry teacher, but then a stay-at-home mom, and they were very good at saving, but we never felt deprived. And what my dad, you know, my, our favorite family story is my dad came home when in New York City they started offering pension plans, and you were allowed to put away as much as 50% of your, of your income. And my parents had three kids and a house, a little house in Queens, um, New York, and my dad said, we have to put away 50% of our income, Shirley. And my mom said, ah, how can we afford it? And my dad's answer was, we can't afford not to. We have to do this. And they both did it. 
And my mom was like the first arbitrager, I think, because she would buy, you know, something was 10% off. She would, you know, wait for triple coupon day, get 30% off, and then get like free. All of our plates and glassware came from free from the supermarket because you could use coupons. Once you buy stuff, then, you, you know, so it was all like they, the supermarket was paying my mother to shop there because she was so wise about this kind of thing. So I learned that, you know, frugality or being smart about money is a great thing. And I think it's really empowering. And um, I think growing up with those lessons, I feel like it's, it's fun to be able to talk about them with people and make it a lot less scary than it seems. The new book is Make Your Kid a Money Genius. Even if you're not, it is available everywhere. Books are sold. It's already the number one parenting book in America. Beth Kobliner, great talking with you. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. It's so good to talk to you. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and David Kretzman. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our podcasts by going to podcast.fool.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Just click the subscribe button. Takes Just two, do it. It takes two seconds. Go ahead. We'll be with you. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar, and our man Steve Broido from Behind the Glass will hit you with a question. David Kretzman, you're up first. What are you looking at? We're talking a lot about video games, and I don't want to overlook electronic arts, so I'm going to go with that once again. I, I just love the, the different franchises the company has under its belt. You have Battlefield, Mass Effect, Star Wars, Titanfall, EA Sports. And I think we will see more sports leagues look to shift to eSports. And if that happens, EA is just in a great position with Madden, FIFA, NHL, uh, really across the board. So I, I think the company is in a good position if that trend continues. $3.2 billion in net cash. I really like CEO Andrew Wilson. So I think a lot of things to like here uh, for, for this year and going forward. Steve, question about electronic arts? Are any of these phones I can play on my cell phone? I saw it at the Super Bowl. There are a lot of ads for them. Are, are any of these cell phone games any good these days? Yeah, they they, they just launched NBA Live for uh, for mobile. They have Madden on mobile. So all those traditional franchises uh, are on mobile, and they, they keep seeing those user counts going up. So you should try it out, Steve. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Yeah, checking out Control 4, ticker CTRL. This is one I've called out on the show before, but it's been a while. Um, Seems like this one was headed for mediocrity at best, but but perhaps we were just a little bit early to the game in looking at this stock. But the the company focuses on solutions, both on both on the hardware and software side for the connected home, which is becoming more and more a thing now with the success of Amazon's Echo, um, and and recently Control Four integrated with the Echo. So it has, I think, opened them up to a much larger market opportunity. It makes ultimately what Control Four does more relatable to the everyday person um, and and easier to integrate into. To the home. Uh, historically, Control 4 has focused more on the high-end um, total solution. And now that they are uh, integrating with things like the Amazon Echo, this really, I think, expands their market opportunity in a, a very significant way. The stock had a phenomenal Friday after earnings up, I think around 20%. Perhaps this is, a, this is something on the road to recovery. Steve, question about Control 4? 
Are there security concerns here? I think about somebody opening my garage door while I'm at work, just <laughs> online, going to my phone and just opening up, it. open the windows. And I think there are as many concerns as your as your mind will allow. And and I'm with you, Steve. I have security concerns myself. We have an Echo at home where I've I've hooked up our lighting to the Echo, but I just I'm not going to hook up our locks to the Echo. There's just a point where I I I just can't make that. Leap. All right, Matt Argusinger, what are you looking at? Hey, I'm going with American Tower, ticker AMT. It's a longtime rule breaker. We just added it recently to our MDP watch list. Uh, this is a real estate investment trust, a REIT. They own 144,000 tower sites around the world, uh, including places like India, where they have almost 60,000 sites, and Brazil, where they have about 18,000. Uh, and this is all about wireless data and the growth in wireless data. And you know they they own one of the biggest, actually the largest wireless data footprint in the world. Uh, pays a nice, modest dividend, a growing dividend. Um, like the business. Steve, question about American Tower? I'm a shareholder. What's their next move? What's the next big play? Can they just put in more towers? More <laughs> they, American Towers? Well, they're, they're mostly an acquisition company, so I expect them to continue to make acquisitions, but mostly kind of outside the U.S., probably in emerging markets like Asia, Latin America. Steve, three stocks. You got one you want to add to your watch list? I might play some video games this weekend. Let's go Electronic Arts. All right. All right, David Kretzman, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank you. That is going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.